Hi, this is Ed Fitzpatrick. If you enjoy local politics as much as I do, be sure to join our friends at Rhode Island PBS for the show A Lively Experiment. Hosted by Jim Hummel, the weekly series features journalists, pundits, and politicians debating the stories and issues that matter most to us Rhode Islanders. Tune in to A Lively Experiment and be part of the conversation. Fridays at 7 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS and wherever you get your podcasts. From the Boston Globe, this is Rhode Island Report. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. The Democratic primary for Rhode Island governor is only about seven months away. Between now and then, we'll be interviewing all of the major candidates here on Rhode Island Report. We start today with former CBS executive Helena Folks. We'll talk about where she stands on the major issues, how she responds to her critics, and why she thinks she's qualified for Rhode Island's top job. That's after this quick break. When you want to go beyond the headlines, let me recommend Rhode Island PBS Weekly. Rhode Island PBS Weekly is an award-winning news magazine broadcast that gives you the full story, powered by investigative journalism and narrative storytelling. New episodes of Rhode Island PBS Weekly drop Sundays at 7.30 p.m. on Rhode Island PBS. Watch past episodes at ripbs.org weekly. That's ripbs.org weekly. All right. Welcome back. I'm here with Helena Folks, a former CVS executive and a Democratic candidate for governor. Thanks for joining me, Helena. Hi, Ed. Good to see you. Let's start with the recent news that Congressman Jim Langevin won't run again. How much pressure did you get from Democrats to run for Congress instead of governor? So I certainly got phone calls from Democrats over the weekend asking me to consider. I got phone calls from other people asking me to stay in the race. And at the end of the day, it was fairly easy for me to say my gut instinct and my heart is in being governor. So tell us, why are you running for governor? I'm running for governor because I think we are at a moment that is pivotal for this state and this country, but this state in particular. So let me tell you what I mean by that. Coming out of COVID, you know, when I was making my decision, we all thought COVID was ending. And I was looking at what had happened to women and people of color in particular. And I was really worried about how do we get people back on track and having a great future. But I was also thinking a lot about the billions of dollars coming our way, the federal government investing in Rhode Island and making sure that we use this money for the next decade to set ourselves up to be as good as we could be. And for me, this all really came down to my ability to get things done for Rhode Islanders. I think that's what I've always been good at. I'm good at listening to people. I'm good at making big things happen. And, you know, just one example of that, Ed, is the decision I led when I was at CVS to get rid of tobacco. That was a really hard decision. So I know how to pull people together. I know how to get hard things done. And I can't think of a more critical moment in this state's history than where we are right now. And I just didn't see anyone in the race who was going to be able to make the kind of impact that I could make. Well, Governor Dan McKee hasn't announced yet, but he's expected to run in 2022. What's your argument for replacing him? 
My argument is that Rhode Islanders deserve better. You know, Rhode Islanders are working really hard. Rhode Islanders all across the state are telling me about three things they really care about. The first is education. The second is affordability. And the third is economy. And I hear often from people that the governor just doesn't feel decisive. He doesn't feel like the kind of person who could make the big decisions that matter for the next decade. And so in each of those areas, this seems like a place where management and leadership experience could make a big difference. And I'm the only person in the race who's managed a giant organization. I led a team of 200,000 people. I led a team where I had an $80 billion budget. So I do know how to make big things happen. I think that's very different than anyone else in the race. Well, what's an example there? What's an example of where Governor McKee has not been decisive? Well, I think COVID is is one very obvious example. So you look at November and gosh, we're all so exhausted by this. Um, and everyone just wants to get back to life. And, and I know we're all fighting for that. But I think the thing that really disappointed me was the, the piece we've learned about his experience in November, where he was seeing the data, he was seeing an upsurge, and I think he chose not to act. And, you know, these are the hard decisions leaders make. Sometimes you see data that you don't want to see, and you, you want to believe that life is moving back to normal. But I think he missed a moment to prepare us. And I'm not saying we would have avoided it, but I think we would have been better off. I think we also could have been much more aggressive about our testing capabilities, make sure we didn't have people waiting three hours in line to get tested or five days to get their PCR tests back. I mean, these are the places where government has to be working better for all of us. And that's the kind of thing I know how to do. You know, when I was running CVS, we filled a billion prescriptions a year across 10,000 stores. Things go wrong. I get that. But part of being a great leader is looking around the corner, planning for the things that could go wrong and being ready when they happen. And that's the kind of executive experience that I think I bring that the governor just doesn't have. Now, you've never run for a public office before. Why start with the governor's office? I mean, even Gina Raimondo ran for treasurer first. Yeah, look, I think it comes down to my executive ability and I've run giant teams. And and I know people like to compare me to Governor Raimondo, but Remember, when she ran for governor, she was about 20 years younger than I am right now. So I think for me, this is like, I really know how to lead. I'm ready. The state is at a critical moment. And I believe that the state and Rhode Islanders really want someone who can help propel us to the future. And I'm ready for that. Today's the deadline for submitting campaign finance reports. You have till midnight. Um, It's a Monday now. How much did you raise? I raised over a million dollars. Speaking of campaign donations, you've been criticized for donating $500 to Senate Republican leader Mitch McConnell back in 2014. Progressives such as former state rep Aaron Regenberg have said, I don't want anyone who at any point thought it was acceptable to donate to McConnell to be my governor. What do you say to criticism like that? Yeah, look, I mean, uh, if I could go back in time, I would not. But let me just remind everyone listening that This um, was part of a CVS effort to make sure that we were working with people on both sides of the aisle. Uh, So I did make that donation in 2014. I wish I hadn't. But I can tell you, as I talk to Rhode Islanders around the state, they are much more focused on the future. And so I do regret it. But it is um, something that 
Um, I'm, I'm listening every day to Rhode Islanders and I think they care a lot about other things and mostly about education, affordability and the economy. Rhode Island is facing several crises all at the same time. So let me ask you what specific plans you have to address them if you become governor. And we'll start with the pandemic. What steps would you have taken, if any, that differ from what Governor McKee has done to stop the spread of the virus? Well, as I said, I, I, I think the most important thing I would have done in November is acknowledge where the trends were going and, and prepare for that. And three specific things that I would be doing right now, because I think people want to also be looking forward. I think, uh, number one, we have a healthcare workforce, which is in crisis. We've got thousands of gaps in nurses and, and, and other folks who are supporting patients every day. And I'd be working very hard to make sure that we're getting them back, back to work and supported the, the way they need to be. Uh, number two, uh, I'd make sure that we are the best that we can be around testing. This is something where you see pockets of great testing happening, including on our college campuses. People are safe and they're free to go to school and free to work. And that's ultimately what we all want. And then finally, I would work to make sure that we're all boosted. You know, the, the definition of being vaccinated has now really become being fully boosted. So those are three things I would be focused on to make sure that ultimately we get kids back to school at five days a week. We've got uh, people feeling confident they can go to work. We all want to get back to being normal. And that's what, uh, you know, I hear every day, I feel every day is we need a governor who can give us the confidence that we can get back to work and back to school. Climate change is a particular problem here in the Ocean State. What is one concrete step you'd take as governor to address that issue? Well, first of all, I think that cities and towns care a lot about resiliency and adaptability. And so I would be making sure that we're working with every city and town so that they have a solid structure in plan and we're funding their municipal efforts, which are really critical. Uh, the second is I would be uh, moving us to a green economy and making sure that we take advantage of the head start we had with offshore wind. People know we were the first state in the country to have offshore wind. There are many New England states now that are trying to be the winners in that category. I see that as a huge opportunity to propel our state forward, create great jobs. And again, Ed, this is something I know how to do. I have hired people, attracted businesses. I think a great governor is almost like the chief marketing officer for the state. So I know how to do that. And I want to use this moment in time to help make us green and hit our metrics to make sure we get to um, our 2030 goals, but also along the way, make it something where Rhode Islanders can win from an economic perspective as well. Couldn't we save a lot of trees if the CVS receipts weren't as long as War and Peace there? Good question, Ed. <laughs> this is, uh, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of CVS Extra Care. People may know that I uh, this is one of the things that I helped to create. And those long receipts really do get in the way. But if you're concerned about it, switch over to digital. That's something you can do today to save the planet. Um, housing and homelessness has been another major crisis here in Rhode Island. Governor McKee has proposed using $250 million in federal funds to address housing. What would you do that isn't in his plan? The thing that I have always found in terms of making change happen is you've got to get stuff done quickly for people. And housing is a long-term problem. 
But specifically what I would be doing that I think is different than the, what, what the governor's doing is I'd be making sure that the money we already have is being spent. So what do I mean by that? Rhode Island got $200 million um, last year from the federal government to make sure that we were helping people not get evicted. We have spent only $100 million of that right now. So I'd be working right now with the team I have to get the money out to people who are at risk and make sure that we're serving them. Uh, we also passed a housing bond, $65 million. Uh, again, we've only spent half of that money. So while the governor is proposing things for the long term that I'm certainly exploring to understand more, I haven't read enough of the details to say that I fully understand, what I don't think is happening enough is let's fight hard today with the money that we have to make sure that we're putting it to work for Rhode Islanders. Another crisis is the opioid crisis. We had a record number of accidental overdose deaths last year in Rhode Island. What would you do about that? I think the most important thing we can do right now is to use the settlement money that um, the attorney general has, has just negotiated to put it to work in the communities and for the people. It's absolutely devastating. In November, a federal jury found that CVS, Walgreens, and Walmart recklessly distributed massive amounts of pain pills in two Ohio counties. What do you have to say about that verdict in your role at CVS? Yeah, look, I, I have not uh, worked at CVS in, in four years, so I can't comment on that particular case. But I am absolutely devastated for all the families in this country that have gone through this issue. It is uh, it is just terrible for them. I'm also angry. I'm angry at Purdue Pharma, who I think is the real villain in this story because they darn well knew what they were doing and they created this crisis. That suit's not against Purdue Pharma, though. It's against the, the pharmacies. I mean, do you feel CVS could have done anything differently? I think it was a really hard situation. And I think pharmacists were caught in a tough spot because they were getting what looked like valid prescriptions. And, you know, pharmacists come to work every day to serve people. So, again, I don't know the specifics of that case, but I certainly think that uh, everyone in the system could have done more. Another big issue is the proposed hospital merger. Employees from Lifespan and Care New England have voiced concerns about that merger. Do you support it? And how would you address the, the concerns of those union members? I, I would be in favor of um, getting parties around the table and seeing how maybe this merger could help us reimagine the future. And so um, what I would be open to is this is an opportunity maybe to rethink healthcare. And certainly I'd want to understand what um, what we could do to make sure that we could have more frontline workers with more resources as a result of the merger. So that would, that would be the view that I would have is how could we make this happen so that more doctors, more nurses, more practitioners are, are serving people and using the merger as a way to get there. And I'd be pulling people together right now to figure that out and asking everyone who works across the system what guardrails we need to put in place. Certainly, I wouldn't I wouldn't uh, support a merger with no guardrails. We've got to make sure that we're fighting to protect the healthcare workers themselves. But with the right guardrails, I can imagine this being something that could really help the state. And so that's what I'd be looking to do if I were leading the state at this moment. You were the vice chair of Rhode Island's Economic Development Corporation when Kurt Schilling's Video game company 38 Studios was starting to collapse. I spoke to 
former Governor Lincoln Chafee a couple months ago said that at a very critical juncture in 2012, you supported the idea of extending uh, additional tax credits to 38 studios. You said at that time, I think Lincoln, I remember things differently. So um, can you explain? How do you remember it? Yeah, I, I, um, I, that was a curious moment for me since uh, Link has been out of the state for a long time now. But let me just step back and remind your listeners that um, I was not involved at all when um, that, that investment was made in 38 Studios. I would not have supported it. I don't think that a state should ever make a big bet like that. That's a, a venture capital move, not something we should be doing as a state. So I very much agreed with Link at the time that that was not a wise investment. That being said, I came in with him uh, to help support him to drive the state forward. And uh, we did what I think every good board should do, is we looked at every option on the table to say, this company's going under. We, you know, we got it now. We got to make the best of it for the taxpayers of this state. Let's look at every single option, regardless of the politics, and make sure that we make the best decision for taxpayers. I feel a thousand percent comfortable that all of us did that. I was leading the effort. And um, so we looked at everything. At the end, we decided, unfortunately, there was no good economic route for us. So we didn't propose making any additional investments in 38 Studios. So is he right or wrong when he says you supported the idea of extending 15 million in additional tax credits? He's wrong. I don't, I don't know what he's talking about. And why did you resign from the EDC? Well, I, I, I guess what I had lost was confidence in uh, his ability to lead. And, and this situation was part of it. And that was a difficult decision. Look, I'd never been involved in anything political. I was really just trying to do the best thing for, for the state. I had the honor of serving with really great board members. And I started to feel like it was getting too political. And I just wanted to not be involved in something that was more based on politics than good economic decision-making. I know you're the granddaughter of former Senator Thomas Dodd of Connecticut and the niece of former Senator Chris Dodd. Is, is that who got you interested in politics? Politics um, was something we grew up thinking a lot about when we were kids, yes, because of, because of my grandfather and my uncle, but also on, on my father's side. You know, my, my grandfather, Bernie Bonanno, was one of the first elected members of the school committee in Providence. He had been a teacher at uh, Classical High School and the football coach there. So uh, I grew up in a family that cared a lot about making a difference. I was also very proud of my grandfather. So my grandfather in the 1930s worked in the South on anti-lynching laws. Uh, in the 1940s, he was the lead prosecutor at Nuremberg. We just uh, celebrated Holocaust Remembrance Day. He spent two years in Nuremberg when my mom was very little, um, uh, making sure that the Nazis were, were prosecuted. And uh, in the 1950s, he was a lone supporter of gun safety rights in this country representing a state where he had big gun manufacturers fighting against him. So I certainly had a role model in my grandfather as someone who fought hard for people who didn't necessarily get represented. Uh, my uncle was the driving force behind the Family and Medical Leave Act in the 1980s. So I'm proud of all my relatives who have served and they do inspire me. And I grew up with that spirit of service. And so I'm very excited 
to be able to serve the people of Rhode Island. And I know I need to earn everyone's vote and respect to get there, but it would be a real honor for me. Helena, folks, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you so much, Ed. This was fun. Here are some more stories to check out this week in Globe, Rhode Island. Speaking of the governor's race, campaign fundraising reports were due this week. I have the details on how much all of the candidates have raised so far. A few high-profile donors include Nancy Pelosi and Lin-Manuel Miranda. Less than a year after Alex and Ani filed for bankruptcy, the Rhode Island-based jewelry company is getting a new leader. My colleague Alexa Gagas has a story on the incoming CEO, Scott Berger. And Dan McGowan's latest column takes on Providence's pension crisis. He says Mayor Elorza has done everything he can to address the issue, and it's time for the state to step in. For these stories and more, go to globe.com slash Rhode Island. That's globe.com slash Rhode Island. As we interview all of the candidates for governor this year, we want your questions. What would you ask them? Email your ideas to rinews at globe.com. You might hear your question on the podcast. Rhode Island Report is a production of the Boston Globe. Today's episode was produced by Megan Hall, Carlos Munoz, and Scott Hellman. Audio mixing and mastering by Marissa Ewing of Hemlock Creek Productions. Our music is from APM. I'm Ed Fitzpatrick. See you next week. Looking to binge watch all your favorite PBS shows? You need Rhode Island PBS Passport, Masterpiece, Antiques Roadshow, Rhode Island PBS Weekly, and many more. Watch them all, anytime, and from any streaming device. Learn more about this member benefit at ripbs.org passport. That's ripbs.org passport.